This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Admiral Medical Center in Jackson, and Levy Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The American alligator is the largest reptile in North America. In Mississippi, they're mostly prevalent in the southern two-thirds of the state, but can be found in many parts of Mississippi. So today we're going to talk with the alligator program coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, Ricky Flint, about what to do if you spot an alligator and how to safely participate in the alligator hunting season. Also, Dr. Major is here with your pet questions, ready for those pet questions, and Libby likes to hear about your encounters with nature. You can join our conversation. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. We're getting Dr. Major on the phone line, so Libby, let's uh, start out with you. Uh, Good morning, and when's the last time you saw an alligator? Oh, goodness. The last time I saw an alligator would have been in the fall, probably on the Mississippi River when we were over there fishing and playing. Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to think exactly. Yeah, they're close to Terra. Mm hmm. Hauled out of the water. Plenty of water there. Yeah. And uh, I know I've talked to people, particularly in traveling, because. Everybody thinks about them being out in the summer, but it's been my experience. I want to hear what you have to say is that you can see them any month of the year as long as there's some bright sunshine. That's about the truth, if, yeah. If, if, if it's nice and sunny, they're out. Today so, will be one of those days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bright sun shining, and even though it may be a little cool, they'll, they'll come out and bask on the bank and on the logs and thermoregulate. Yeah, after the show, if we go down to the Pearl River, we might be able to find one. I feel certain. Yeah. Fortunately, the the only time I've seen an alligator is in a zoo. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> safely, uh, be, be, uh, space space between uh, them and me. But uh, they're very fascinating creatures. And so Ricky's going to tell us all about those throughout this hour. We will start uh, with Dr. Major, though. Good morning, Dr. Major. How are things at the clinic today? Good morning. Everything's going good. It's, uh, I hear a few dogs in the background there. They're talking to us, but uh, everything's just been busy, and uh, you know, it's uh, the weather's very nice today. So we'll see how the day goes. Uh, before we, I got a couple of pet emails, but uh, do you have any uh, alligator encounters that you can remember and share with us? Oh, you know, I think we've talked about my pet alligator that I had back when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, his name was Jack, and uh, actually. Uh, he came from down on the coast. Uh, I begged my grandmother to get him for me. They were on sale at that time, which would have been probably in the 50s. Gosh, that's a long time ago. Anyway, uh, he did really well, had a special uh, place fixed for him. Uh, and one day, 
he had such a rain that he was able to get out of his enclosure, and he went down the river somewhere. Hmm. But he got up to be about three, three and a half feet long. Wow. Well, that, that's that's kind of a happy ending to that story, though, that he he was right. able to liberate himself and, and went <laughs> off down the river. So, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't recommend alligators. And, and now, uh, yeah, we was, do have yeah, yeah maybe bring up Troy. Uh, I hate to put you on the spot, but bring up back the the decade that happened. That was yeah. The, I, I know that was before the protections Anything, were put yeah, on. Yeah, before nineteen sixty seven, there yeah. were no yeah. regulations against. Having them as pets or having right. possession of them, yeah. Actually, actually, he was he was fairly, uh, you know, never got bitten or anything. But he 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 ate well, uh, everything from hamburger meat to fish to whatever he might want. Uh, <laughs> and you know, back then there was a lot of things going on. I remember when we were clearing some land where we built our house in Utica. There was a very 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 large alligator snapper uh, turtle that uh, appeared. And uh, just he was part of the fauna there, mm-hmm. and uh, but you know, those are days gone by. I would say if you have a three and a half foot alligator in your house uh, and he wants something, I would give him anything he wants to eat that he's asking for. So <laughs> now, he 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 was he was not in the house. Okay, okay. he had a special special enclosure. All right. Okay. Uh, got a couple of pet emails here for you, Dr. Major. This first one says, My wonderful 50-pound mixed-breed one-year-old puppy has begun to pull the upholstery cushions from outdoor furniture on a porch and take them out to the yard to chew on. This occurs when we're gone from the house. He's got other chew toys. Is there a product I can spray on the fabric that might repel him but not me? I think the key word there was puppy, and the second key word is 50 pounds. He can do pretty much anything he wants to probably. But yes, there are some products called. One is called Bitter Apple, uh, which you can spray on the uh, uh, surface of that uh, cushion, which may help. Uh, most of the dogs will outgrow this. However, not all of them do, and it can be a problem. And uh, I would try to remove the source if you can, but try the Bitter Apple or something equivalent to that that you can spray on the cushions. So it mentions that there are other chew toys, but still chews on the upholstery. Is that some maybe just variety? Maybe he's getting a little bit bored and wanted some something else to chew on. Didn't say what kind of puppy he was, but uh, Labrador Retriever puppies are notorious for just about eating the house down, if possible. <laughs> uh, everything from air conditioner coils to uh, lawnmower wheels to whatever. And is it boredom? Probably a big part of it. Uh, try to, it, but most of our dogs, a lot in a lot of situations, are left to their own devices for a large portion of the day if everybody in the household works. So that does get to a problem. It may have to be he has to be crated for a while uh, to try to get him out of this this syndrome. But uh, it's uh, it is especially da- not dangerous, but especially can be. Uh, very detrimental to the environment of your house and yard uh, with young puppies that are large. But, but that thing, and you pointed it out, it is a puppy, so chewing is certainly normal puppy behavior, and it's something that it, before you get a dog, you have to anticipate, and if you have one, you've got to try to come up with ways to, to deal with it. Right, and some puppies will take, uh, or young dogs will take two some of the chew toys that uh, they have. Some of them are virtually indestructible. 
Uh, there is a company that you can order supposedly indestructible toys from. Uh, I've done that for my own dog at one time, and eventually she tore it up, but uh, she was about 100 pounds. And uh, they can do some damage with those teeth for certain. All right, and here's another puppy question. This one says, when our six-month-old Australian shepherd puppy wants to play, she grabs her toy and wraps her front paws around our ankles, holding on tightly. We're afraid she'll trip us. Can we stop this behavior using positive training techniques? Absolutely, distracting her in the best way possible. Um, That is an unusual uh, approach that she does. She takes the toy and apparently wraps herself around around their feet, and certainly we don't need to be tripped by, by the puppy. Uh, I would say that distracting her, uh, finding another toy maybe that she likes, and rewarding her when she does not do this this type of uh, act. The other thing would be puppies need to learn the basics. If you get your puppy learning to lead properly on a leash, do some sit, stay, just basic training, and that helps a lot, and then reward based on the fact that the dog does well. But, um, you know, if you've got a puppy on your foot, it's kind of hard to, and it sounds like this one must be uh, addicted to doing this. You've got to start over again, and certainly if she does continue to do this, there is such a thing as time out, just like for a child. But um, you need a crate, and you can put her in the crate, and then reward her when she does not do these things and again we mentioned puppies have this kind of behavior but it's best to try to try to curb it or else it, it'll be might be something that that, that continues on uh, when they get older right distraction distraction is a big thing we have a lot of uh dog training people that listen to the, the talk show they may have some suggestions but the main thing is not to, to let it go on and on or it could get to be a very uh bad habit we need to take a break, but first, why don't we let uh, Joe from Kill ha- share his air- alligator story. Joe, thanks for calling in. You're on the air with us. Well, good morning. Thanks for uh, taking my call. I'm a forester for over 40 years here in Hancock County, so I have seen many alligators over the years. But um, about 15 years ago, I'm in the swamp there, not far from Furry River. I came across a dead lake, and that was about... A dozen baby alligators, about eight inches long. And I thought it was the coolest thing. And I got one of them close to me, and I picked it up. I grabbed it. That was a dumb thing to do. But when it started squealing, <laughs> I ran the other way real quickly. But uh, uh, I do have an, a question for the guests. Okay. Um, I work with a, a science center down here on the coast, and we have alligators from time to time show up and I tell them that feeding alligators is against the law in Mississippi. Is that correct or incorrect? That is correct. Um, It is against the law in most all states that have alligators prevalent to feed them uh, for the obvious reason that feeding alligators uh, results in a very negative uh, interaction that alligators expect a handout when they see human activity. Uh, And so in the situations where someone may have been feeding one in the area and an unknowing person uh, is walking or recreating in that area and doesn't 
number one, doesn't even know that an alligator's there, much less that it's being fed. Uh, <clears throat> it can create a situation where the alligator uh, comes very close to the people expecting that handout, and it can be very dangerous. Um, in fact, a number a large number of the percentage of fatal alligator attacks that have occurred in the state of Florida uh, have uh, been centered around alligators that have been fed. And, um, you know, it's it's something we do enforce. Uh, if people get information about uh, someone that is feeding alligators in an area, and sometimes it's not on purpose. Uh, sometimes it can be indirect, such as a person lives on the water, has a boathouse, they go out fishing, and they come to the boathouse and they clean their fish and they discard the remains back into the water. Uh, that can be a very big problem. We we deal with that almost annually. And then also you have people who like to put the automatic fish feeders out on the end of their pier or their boathouse to feed the fish in the area. And that also can attract alligators. The alligators not only will come to uh, prey upon the fish that are coming to the food, they'll actually eat that floating fish food. You'd be surprised that a 10, 12-foot alligator would spend time uh, with a little morsel about the size of a green pea, but uh, they will. And so, yeah, we we do enforce that. If they'll, if they'll eat a little marshmallow, I can imagine they'll eat anything. So. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, we've we've had unfortunate situations. I know of a situation uh, probably about four or five years ago. Uh, we got information about uh, people that were feeding alligators on a National Wildlife Refuge. And uh, we set up some surveillance cameras and got it on video, and it was, uh, it was shocking, uh, the dangerous situation that was occurring it was off of a public road bridge uh we had infants and toddlers that were hanging off the bridge rails and uh a number of very large alligators that were hanging out underneath the bridge and what people don't understand is that you know if your child fell into the water uh during that time they they don't know the difference between the handout and a person and um Unfortunately, we had to euthanize a number of those alligators because there was nothing we could do to keep that from being a, a dangerous situation. You can't catch them and relocate them. Um, and obviously, a lot of people think, well, why don't y'all carry these alligators to the zoos? Well, do you realize how many zoos there are in the country? And you realize almost all of them already have an alligator. And so uh, even if the state of Mississippi wanted to get rid of all theirs, there'd be nowhere to put them. So it's it's unfortunate and um you know, we, we encourage people to report that information to us. You know, even in the museum, in a captive situation like that, we have to be very careful how we feed those alligators because they're they're not the brightest animal out no. there in the woods, I guess. And when you're really big and great big teeth and are able to hurt people, and they can't distinguish between our workers either all the time. So right. we, we feed them in a very controlled way in location and everything. You have to be mm-hmm. careful. Yep. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Today we are talking about alligators with the Alligator Program Coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. It's Ricky Flint. Uh, and we're looking for your questions and comments as we do each week. So if you want to join our conversation, you can always email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Libby, I'm sorry we got carried away with our alligator discussion. I forgot to give you an opportunity. You always like to tell us about some uh, upcoming events of interest. Oh, yes. Um, Clinton Nature Center has got, in fact, another reptile-related 
event at 6 o'clock tonight. So what this is January the 19th, 6 o'clock in Clinton. They're at the Nature Center, and uh, it's Dr. Hensley from uh, Mississippi College. He's a herpetologist, and let's see, he named his talk friendly, Your Friendly Backyard Snake, <laughs> and uh, he called it a chicken snake, and some of us know them as rat snakes, but um, it'll be fun, and it is a kid-friendly lecture. It's I almost hate to use the word lecture. That sounds kind of serious. You don't have to take notes, and you can be three years old and enjoy it, too. So uh, if you get a chance to go to the Clinton Nature Center, you can do that. One of our listeners sent us a picture, Kevin, of a Mediterranean gecko and asked what it was. And, um, oh, gosh, they're almost translucent when they're mm-hmm. tiny, and they're very pale, grayish, whitish, kind of ghosty-looking little um, lizards, and they are from the Mediterranean, as their name might tell you, and they're an introduced species pretty much all over the world. Um, I remember um, about 25, 30 years ago when people first started seeing them in Clinton was the first time that I had ever seen one, and uh Terry Vandevender called us and asked, come over and see it, because he had been reading that they were invading all over the place. Uh, Some invasive species can do a whole lot of harm. These little guys have not been tied to any kind of problems, so I think we're all just kind of leaving them alone. They got here on their own to some extent. Well, I guess I shouldn't say on their own. I'm sure they came in in some kind of a plant container Containers, or something. imports, yeah. 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 And uh, they have the reputation of eating cockroaches, which um, is the surest way to, to get acceptance, I guess, in Mississippi <laughs> households. So uh, people tend to like their Mediterranean geckos, but they're not protected by any law. So if you don't like yours, you can get rid of them just like you can your cockroaches, I guess. But I tell you what, the cockroaches are a lot harder to get rid of than the geckos, so <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to keep my geckos. You know, all the exotic introduced species, um, and fortunately with this one, I mean, it's not like they're causing great problem, but mm-hmm. in just about every situation, those introduced exotic species are impacting our native wildlife animals in some form or fashion. Yeah. And um, we, you know, we all, as wildlife professionals, we do everything we can to, to discourage introduction of that, but... I think as, uh, like in these cases with imports and shipping containers and things like that, uh, I mean, an animal that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world can be on the other side of the world in just a few days, and um, and they wind up occupying environments that they aren't normally found in. That's Ricky Flint. He's our guest for the day. He is the Alligator Program Coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. So, Ricky, tell us, uh, how long have you been interested in alligators? Well, I've had some interest in alligators, I guess, most of my life. Like many people my age, uh, I grew up in the area era of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom mm-hmm. and uh, always you know, looked forward to that show airing every Sunday afternoon. And um, that's where I got my interest. That's how I wound up in the wildlife conservation field. Uh, it's been... Uh, a tremendous uh, opportunity for me. I never dreamt as as a kid that this would be what I was doing as an adult as a, for a job. And uh, been in the wildlife field now for almost 32 years. But, um, yeah, so 
once I got uh, into this program, which I started as the alligator program coordinator in 2003 and began spending more time directly with alligators, um, I have quickly learned that, in my opinion, the American alligator is the most incredible animal we have in North America. I mean, there, there's just nothing that is more resilient, uh, obviously uh, described as the uh, a modern, still existing, prehistoric animal, uh, the living dinosaur, uh, probably one of the only ones left in the in the world. And um, every every day that I'm out with them, I'm learning something different. And they get a bad rap, and you know they deserve protection. Uh, a lot, some people think that. Uh, just the mere sight of an alligator deserves that someone needs to come and catch it, remove it, kill it, uh, because it is dangerous. And they really are not. Uh, until people get involved with feeding them, they really aren't that dangerous. And we've never had a record of a, an attack of an alligator on a person in, the, in Mississippi. Uh, there is one ancient record in the 1890s I've seen where... Uh, a newspaper reported someone was attacked by an alligator in the late 1890s, but uh, since then, nothing. And, uh, you know, as more people uh, expand our homes and our businesses into the wetlands, which is uh, occurring more and more, um, we're moving people and human activity into the backyards of wildlife all the time. And, that's an unfortunate uh, problem we have to deal with. And, um, as, for instance, here uh, in the Jackson area, we have the Pelahatchee Bay alligator hunting season that's going to be open uh, this May. Uh, we're taking applications February 1 through the 8th. Uh, this is an area that traditionally has never been open to alligator hunting. When we first started alligator hunting in 2005, uh, the, the thought was that uh, hunting just wasn't going to be a good fit in a residential area such as Pelahatchee Bay where we have a substantial number of uh, residential areas on the North Shore and the South Shore. But uh, we've been able to prove uh, over 18, 19 years now that this alligator hunting opportunity is very safe, uh, not only for the hunters, but those that are around alligator hunting who may live in the areas where hunting is taking place. And so uh, I did go to the Pearl River Valley Water Supply District Board uh, last year and presented a proposal to open up alligator hunting in Pelatch Bay simply because um, this area is occupied by a number of adult breeding females uh, that I found in my survey work. And um, the area is also home to chronic alligator complaints. And we know that they're dispersing from this very small area of about uh, 1,500 acres, actually probably only about 900 acres of uh, alligator habitat there. And um, they hatch, and after about three years, they're going to disperse into uh, available habitat. So uh, they wind up traversing across these areas where homes and schools and businesses are, and it becomes a problem. And it, it's a big problem for our uh, staff to, to deal with the volume of those calls. And so this is an effort to try to, for the first time, actually do some population control through our alligator hunting efforts. We're, we're hoping that uh, the permits and the permit holders will actually target some of these adult females and reduce that breeding population there. 
But I imagine you do some studies so that you know, like, how many permits to issue so that you it's population control done done correctly, I guess. Right. And, you know, the biology and reproduction of alligators is completely different from mammals that we may think of, you know, uh, between trying to manage a population of deer or rabbits that uh, are, from the time they're born, they're sexually mature within, in some cases, six months to a year. And they're reproducing and adding uh, back to the population. In, in the case of alligators, it could take nine to fifteen years before an alligator is sexually reproductive, and um, so it is a very uh, careful balance. And uh, we're we're doing everything we can to make sure that we're not being detrimental, but at the same time providing some control measures in in this area. And Statewide, as far as the alligator uh, harvest goes, my estimates show we're probably harvesting less than 1% of the adult population every year. So it's not detrimental. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPP Think Radio. And our guest today is the alligator program coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. It's Ricky Flint. You can always send us an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Ricky, we touched uh, briefly before the break about uh, alligator hunting season, and you mentioned it's uh, now at the at Palahatchie Bay uh, area has been added in, and I think you said that's in May. Um, so if someone's interested, how what's the process for obtaining a permit to do some alligator hunting? Yeah, so uh, this uh, opportunity on Palahatchie Bay is is a little different from our traditional application process, though it's the same uh, way to do it. You go online to our website. We will be beginning to take applications at 10 a.m. on February 1st, going through 10 a.m. on February 8th. And it is a uh, two-person application. And um, you go online, you'll have to have uh, uh, at least a valid Mississippi hunting and fishing license to be able to apply. Uh, then you will need to uh, submit your information along with the secondary applicant, who is going to be your partner on the permit. And then once the primary applicant submits the application, an automated email will go to the secondary applicant where they will confirm their information, confirm that they wish to uh, apply with the primary applicant, and then the application will be finished. We will do a draw uh, the week after the 8th, and I think we have it scheduled for February 14th. Uh, We have a third-party entity that does our drawing. An automated email notification will go to those winners. They will have 48 hours uh, to purchase their permit, and at the end of 48 hours, uh, they'll lose that opportunity. And if we have any available permits uh, unsold at that point we'll do a second draw uh, about a week later and um, from there uh, we'll mail them the packets with everything they need to know and then they'll be able to hunt uh, basically a three-night weekend uh, the first two weekends of May. I think the first hunt will go from May 5th through the 8th. The second hunt will be May 12th through the 15th. And I think we touched on this earlier, but there are limited number of permits because you don't want too many hunted and so to to get the right amount of culling of the population, I guess? That is part of it. And also part of it is the limited amount of space uh, there. Like I said, there's only about 1,500 acres of water, period. Uh, The 
alligator hunting primarily will take place on less than half of that. And uh, we, we are limiting the number of hunting parties on the water at any time so that they are not impacting each other. They have a, a more quality hunt. Um, and we also have closed areas uh, that they cannot go into, period. They just simply are not allowed to go into those residential areas. Um, we can handle, as an agency, the nuisance alligators that exist up in those areas. And, you know, we don't, we don't need people shining lights all hours of the night up in those residential areas. Uh, we need them to go into this area where the nesting habitat is, where the reproduction is taking place. Those residential areas are where alligators disperse to during the summer. Uh, that's not the problem. We, we want them to take the adult nesting females out there in the remote area. Uh, so it's good to know there's a Mississippi alligator hunting training course. How does one go about hunting an alligator? Yeah, so uh, when we first started this alligator hunting season, it was a mandatory training course you had to go through. Obviously, at that time, there had never been an alligator hunting season in Mississippi, and there were people who just really didn't know what or how to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, so we had a mandatory training course back in the day, and we – over the years of between 2005 and about 2012, 13, uh, we had over 5,000 participants come through that alligator hunting training course. And now it is, it's not a mandatory course. We have actually, through the technology, been able to produce the alligator training course online. Uh, there's a series of 11 videos. Uh, some of those videos are quite lengthy, but it, it covers everything from alligator history, alligator biology, uh, capture methods, uh, how to prepare your, um, your uh, alligator after it's been harvested, uh, all the regulations, uh, dispatch methods, a uh, lot of alligator safety, boating safety, all of that is included in that 11 video series that anybody can go to and watch at any time, any time of the year. So what are some uh, methods for, uh, for c capturing an alligator? The most common method is basically, uh, for lack of a better word, you're casting a weighted treble hook over the back of the alligator that's uh, swimming in the water, and you're retrieving the line until the hook comes in contact with the skin of the alligator. And you retrieve it in, kind of like a giant tuna in the ocean. And uh, once you get the alligator uh, to the boat, uh, once a snare or noose is... Uh, placed upon the alligator's head or at least one leg, which is what we define as legally restrained and under control, then the alligator can be dispatched with a shoulder-fired long-barrel shotgun using basically birdshot at point-blank range, and we instruct them on exactly how to do that. It's a point-blank uh, discharge of the, the shotgun shell uh, through the spine just behind the skull. It's very quick, safe, and humane, and it, it, it also... Uh, keeps us from having the concern of people discharging firearms out across the water. Um, unfortunately, there are a number of cable television shows that depict alligator hunting in a different way, uh, such as discharging high-powered rifles out across the water. That is not legal in the state of Mississippi. We do not allow that. Um, obviously, people who are out there recreating on the water or living near the water don't need to be worried about a bullet ricocheting off the water, not knowing where it's going to go. But the way we have it regulated, it's very safe and um, for everyone on the water, including the hunters and, and anybody that's standing by. You know, I, th I think, again, I mentioned most of my encounters with alligators have been in zoos, and a lot of time you see them, as we mentioned before, maybe if the sun is out sort of out there basking, and they seem like, oh, you know, 
but I, I guess they can get along, get around pretty quickly, and it, it, it's kind of a challenge, I guess, to be an alligator hunter. Yeah, so uh, definitely um, alligator hunters find out there's a very big learning curve, uh, and I wouldn't say that alligator hunters have the advantage. The alligators have the advantage. Uh, they're, they're not easy to catch. Um, and then if you do come in contact, it's not very easy to get them to back to the boat in order to restrain them. So it is a, a very challenging adventure. And, um, you know, when you consider that an alligator can be at the service, go underwater, stay underwater for anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half uh, before they come back up, uh, you need to have some patience. <laughs> and uh, and alligators will do that. Um, and I, I have actually timed alligators under the water for up to an hour and a half hmm. before they resurfaced. And they can, again, that's, that's why they're so unique. Um, there's just so many things about alligators and the way they live and survive that is just hard to believe, really. You know, a lot of times in the news you hear, see pictures and things of, of kind of giant alligators, record-breaking ones. Give us an idea of, of how big these gators can get to be. Well, in Mississippi, as far as alligator hunting records go, our longest alligator on record is 14 feet and three-quarters of an inch. Uh, our heaviest alligator, uh, which was also a 14-foot alligator, uh, weighed 826 pounds. Wow. I know records of some alligators in the past that have been called as nuisance alligators, one in particular down on the Gulf Coast that weighed in excess of 900 pounds. Um they can get very large, particularly the alligators uh, in the Mississippi Delta or anything adjacent to the Mississippi River. Uh, if you know much about the uh, the pyramid of uh, wildlife um, and the way things work, the food web, alligators are at the very top. They're an apex predator, and the nutrients of the plants are transferred to the insects that are transferred to the other animals, birds, fish uh, that consume those. And so that nutrient uptake goes all the way up to the top of the apex, which is the alligator. And in the Mississippi Delta, the most some of the most fertilely rich uh, soils and water uh, anywhere in the world, um, we see some very uh, enormous uh, specimens there in the Delta. We know that... Um, and you also have this newest, we talk about introduced exotic species. I've, I've witnessed on numerous occasions uh, the Asian carp, the flying carp, the silver <laughs> carp, the big head carp that are all introduced and are a complete problem uh, to our fisheries in those waterways adjacent to the Mississippi River that are just, they're clogged with these things. I mean, it's, it's amazing the number of those fish that are there. But... They are a very easy prey source for alligators. I have seen them gorging on uh, these carp that have died as a result of oxygen depletion, and there's you know hundreds of carp uh, laying in the water, and the alligators are just swimming around, swallowing them. And um, even when they're not dead, they're so readily available uh, that you know it, it has made a difference. Uh, I'm certain uh, in the growth rates uh, and uh, the changes in the population in the Mississippi Delta. It must be like an all-you-can-eat buffet when they see that. Absolutely. <laughs> if you've never been and experienced the jumping Asian carp 
uh, along the Mississippi River and the tributaries, and this goes all the way up to the Great Lakes. It's it's phenomenal. <clears throat> yeah. I, I have in some of my alligator survey routes uh, that we do in the summer. Uh, we did used to do one on the Little Sunflower River uh, there around Delta National Forest, and the last time I did a survey there, we had 52 of the cart that landed in the boat that we had to evict out. That's just the ones that landed and we took out. And the and we're talking about fish that are in excess of 20, some of them even 40 and 50 pounds. And that particular night, they destroyed everything in my boat. Destroyed my steering wheel, the gear selection, <laughs> the bilge pump, uh, all the handles and everything on my boat was destroyed that night and it became a matter of our safety and we just we simply don't do the surveys there anymore because it's just dangerous yeah i've been knocked down more than once yeah in boat. Uh, we've it's, had people injured uh, yeah. i know people that have had to have major surgery uh done to their face and uh you know bones broken uh i had one of my passengers one time had he not had a, a significant uh life jacket on I'm, I'm certain he would have experienced uh, broken ribs uh, because a fish jumped and hit him in the chest while we were doing about 35 miles an hour and it's yet another reason why even adults need to be wearing that life jacket absolutely you're listening to creature comforts kevin farrell here with dr troy major libby hartfield and our guest for this hour is ricky flint from the mississippi department of wildlife fisheries and parks We've been talking about alligators, and we do have a couple of callers to get to. Let's start in Olive Branch. Johnny has an alligator story for us. Good morning, Johnny. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Hey, y'all, this morning. Yeah, I've got a kind of funny alligator story. I've got a good friend that her parents had a lake house in Baymanet, Alabama. Well, they were out boating one day, skiing, and as the lady made the turn, she fell off. And the boat was turned around, and they were pointing at her, waving at her. Well, what they were waving at was an alligator coming up to this lady. As soon as the lady caught the rope and pulled up on her skis, the gator bit a chunk oh, out no. of her life preserver. Ooh. And uh, from then on out, she was known as the alligator woman. Mm. <laughs> uh, I, I think if I were skiing and fell down and there was an alligator behind me, I might not really want to know that bit of information. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she probably had to clean out her swimsuit. She got up in the boat. All right, uh, Johnny, thanks for the call. Thanks for the story. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines. Off to Eupora we go. Our friend Rachel's on the line. Good morning, Rachel. Go ahead, please. Good morning. So I'm wondering if your guest knows if we have any alligator farms in Mississippi and uh, if he does know anything about those, if they exist. So alligator farming uh, has existed in the state of Mississippi. Uh, it was most prevalent back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, by the late 1990s, most of those farms had uh, basically gone out of business. Um, we have, uh, let's see, I have two permitted facilities in the state of Mississippi right now. Uh, one of them is no longer commercially active. Uh, it's down on the Gulf Coast. It's uh, also uh, in, a, in coordination with a tourist attraction there. at the. Uh, it's the Gulf Coast Gator Ranch and Tours there near Moss Point. Uh, we have a alligator egg uh, production facility that's down near Wiggins. Uh, they have uh, 
captive uh, alligators that are held in impoundments outside, fenced area, and they produce eggs every year, and then those hatchlings are transferred to another farm in uh, Louisiana uh, for commercial production. Um, it has had very moderate success so far. It's not working very well. Um, to say the, the, the least, the market for alligator hides has just dropped off completely with a lot of other economies in the world. Um, basically, the only thing that's really uh, commercially productive for alligators right now is alligator meat. And so the alligator farms that exist primarily in Louisiana are doing it uh, primarily to produce meat, and then secondarily they're doing some things with the hides. But it's really not uh, a business of, of much uh, success here in Mississippi. All right, Doug, so, right? go ahead. Are there... Is there an oversight committee or an oversight law? Oh, yes. For the, yeah, uh, it's, it's highly regulated. We have about a five- or six-page document that regulates everything about those facilities and how they're permitted and activities that they have to do. All right, Rachel, appreciate your call this morning. Um, you know, at the State Fair one year, I had uh, some alligator, uh, uh, grilled alligator meat. Ricky, have you ever had alligator? Oh, yeah. It's uh, It's edible. Um, you could, you will see it, uh, offered commercially at a lot of restaurants, uh, along with a lot of other exotic, uh, items that that are there. And the alligator meat that you get in the restaurants is commercially produced. It's not from wild alligators. Uh, so, um, it's, it's not bad. Uh, it's not something that I crave like I might a good fresh crappie filet or a, a Mississippi Delta catfish filet but uh yeah it's it's edible mm-hmm. that you know the old saying tastes like chicken to me it did kind of <laughs> taste like chicken <laughs> it, it is a little unique uh I describe it as uh, a texture of pork uh the taste is somewhere between pork chicken and frog legs if you've had any of those it's it's somewhere between all that it's it's one of those items that you have to be very careful in how it's prepared. Uh, if you overcook it, uh, it becomes very tough. Uh, so they have to be very careful about that. Libby, have you ever had gator meat? I have, yes, a number of times in Louisiana. And a sausage is made mm-hmm. from alligator was good. Yeah, but it's I guess it's somehow it hasn't crossed over maybe from being a novelty. Right. It never kind of made it. Right. Into a, it's into a, a mainstay, yeah. Uh, we had one caller who couldn't stay on the line, but it was a question about the temperature of alligator eggs during incubation and what the effect that might have. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Um, the sex of the alligator is determined uh, in the egg, in the nest, during incubation, around the area of about 14 to 21 days. The alligator egg is laid, and they incubate for about 60 days before they hatch. Uh, During that critical period of about 14 to 21 days, those eggs are stratified in the nest. And I probably ought to go back and describe what the nest is like. So the alligator will hip up basically a compost pile on dry land very close to the water of leaves, uh, aquatic vegetation, uh, dirt, sticks, wood, Uh, you name it, into a pile and then uh, excavates a hole in the center of the nest with her hind legs, deposits the eggs, and then covers them back up. 
the decomposition that's occurring in that compost pile by the dead and live vegetation creates heat, and that's what incubates the eggs. So at that critical period, around 14 to 21 days, depending on where those eggs are in the nest, um, you can uh, have a nest that actually produces hatchlings of all the same sex if the temperature is up the right amount at that time. You could also have a, a, a complete transition of males and females throughout the nest because the lower part of the nest may be a cooler temperature than the top and vice versa. And so, yeah, it's it's very unique. Uh, we've got about a minute and a half left. If someone listened to the show this morning wants to get more information about alligators, what uh, where would you point them to? Uh, you can go to our website, uh, mdwfp.com and slash alligator if you want to go directly to it or if you get to mdwfp.com click on the button at the top that says wildlife and hunting and then it'll have a list of all the different species projects and you'll see alligator program on there and then you'll you'll find basic information about alligator biology different articles uh tables uh and then you'll find also all the information and the regulations about alligator hunting in the state of mississippi all right, and remind us on the hunting season on Pillahatchie Bay. When is that? That's coming up in May? Taking up applications starting February 1st through the 8th, starting at 10 a.m. On February 1st, ending at 10 a.m. On February 8th, the hunting season itself will take place the first two weekends of May. All right, and, you know, earlier in the show, uh, Libby mentioned that uh, we had gotten a picture of a gecko, and so I always like to remind you that if you are out and about and you see something you don't know what it is, you're interested in it, and you've got your smartphone handy, go ahead and snap a picture of it and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, and we'll see if we can't help you figure out what exactly it is. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded, provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit Creature Comforts, Dot mpbonline.org or just download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Our show is produced by Java Chapman and our call screener today was Charles Arnold. For Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield and our guest Ricky Flint, I'm Kevin Farrell inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.